he starred in more than 100 movies, from Lassie Come Home to Planet of the Apes. And Roddy McDowell had just as many roles off screen. Photographer, film buff, friend to just about everyone he touched. From the time he was a small boy, he was a headliner on Broadway, in movies, on television. He also became a film historian and a leading crusader for the preservation of Hollywood's earliest movies. McDowell once explained his passion for film by saying, quote, The movies are important. I'm not. Well, his fans and friends disagree. I will never leave you, Mama. You, boy, if you should ever leave me, I'll be sorry I ever had babies. Why did you have them? Jeepers. I could ever have a coat like that. The same thing I like about Roddy now, I liked about him as a little boy. I related to him. I believed him. I could trust him, even as a child. He was a very, very fine actor from the time he was born. He was a young star in the picture business. He was a survivor because he was one of the few child stars that were able to make the transition. Queen Cleopatra's second procession into Rome will surpass her first. I discovered evidence of a simian culture that existed long before the sacred scrolls were written. Objection! Each decade, whatever it was, Roddy was there as the sensational character actor. Roddy loves the business. He likes everything about films. He certainly knows almost everything about it. He's a kind man, an honorable man, an honest man. He brings that goodness and that honesty into all his work. He was one of Hollywood's most famous child actors and grew up to become one of its most respected stars. But despite having spent over 60 years in the public eye, he has remained a remarkably private man and confidant to many of the industry's most famous personalities. An award-winning actor, a gifted photographer, and an ardent activist for film preservation, Roddy McDowell has become an integral part of the Hollywood history he so loves. someone in this house. What? There's someone in this house. No, there isn't. Just Abby and you and I. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Just that sometimes I think that people are following me, that's all. And then I hear my own heart. It used to go thumpeter, 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 but lately there's been a sort of uber, uber, uber along with it. <laughs> Say that again. Uber, uber, uber. That's funny. Is it? Aren't I clever? I just made it up. This is a confession, not a sermon. I did it. I am guilty. Oh, yeah. How do you know that? Oh, but why I did it? That is another matter. Listen to that. The beating of my foolish, telltale heart. Of course, O oh nation of brainwashed television viewers who worship graven images in the shape of family-sized tins of spray-on deodorant, you have guessed it, I did it for love, L-O-V-E!
talented man. My skin's come loose in places and I have trouble holding it on. I have to look in corners for the broken pieces of myself. If I find the hand I've lost, I... I pin it to my sleeve so there will be something for people to grasp when they greet me. Always. That's the problem. That is what makes a trooper, not an original. You steal a piece here, you steal a piece there, you stitch it together. It's mechanical, it's obvious. Maybe it works, but suddenly there are ten copycats out there stealing the same act. Now, is that what you want? No. Now, what is it that you want? I want to be a star. <laughs> oh, the stars are not pieced together. They're uh, special. One of a kind. Look inside yourself. Nobody can really steal a star. As fresh as clover and I begin to sigh all over again Every night at seven You come by like me returning And me, oh my, I start in yearning again You seem to bring far away spring near me I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven Every time the same thing happens I fall once again in love, but only with you Hey everybody, welcome to Not Just Yesterday Thank you for tuning in I am your host, Zoe Dean And today is a very special day And as a result of this special day, this is a very special show Today is September 17th which means if he were alive today, Roddy McDowell would be 89 years old. Today is Roddy's birthday. And in celebration of this wonderful day, I have lined up some beautiful tributes to honor this beautiful man. Roddy was a man who touched the hearts of millions of people during his 60-plus years as an actor and his 70 years of life. And he has continued to touch millions more in the 19 years since his death. Roddy was an amazing human being, actor, artist, photographer, and even more importantly, he was an amazing friend to all who knew him. Because of the impact that Roddy had on the world, I felt the only fitting tribute to celebrate his birthday would be to have a show that just discussed him as a person and all the things about him 
that made him the wonderful man that we all grew to love so very much. So today for my birthday tribute to Roddy, I lined up a special interview with one of Roddy's biggest, most hardcore fans, who has been closely following his career since the early 1970s. And so now, here is my interview with Julie Carricker. Welcome to the show, my dear. Yes, all the way. <laughs> so, for, you know, 40 something years. I hope you won't say how many. 45? <laughs> That's, 40, yeah, 45. <laughs> so, that, that wow. definitely counts you as a hardcore fan right there. 45 years is a very long time to follow someone. Mm, uh, yeah, I'm not the longest, I don't think. I think there are others who maybe latched on more tightly or as tightly than I did, mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're younger, people I've talked with over the years, and there have been many, and the internet has been wonderful because it's brought so many of us together. Yes, definitely. Now, um, we should talk a little bit first about org because that was the very first organization, I believe, that yeah. brought the fans together. I didn't come on board till probably 2002-ish or so, and it's been, you know, it's been a fluctuating group, probably a good dozen or so very active participants at one time and then another probably at least two dozen others and we're not very active right now we've just kind of most of us are on Facebook together so we've kind of just switched to that there were times when the conversations were running hot and heavy and fast and and insane sometimes and very (laughs) silly sometimes and Sometimes people would get a little annoyed with people saying something they didn't think was appropriate, and we we became a family, and we sent Christmas cards every year. I still do that with a few people, not very many anymore, but Mm -hmm. it it brought people together that I still consider good friends, and why do we like that? Yes, I think he would be very pleased to know that he's brought so many people together, and what has become a family atmosphere. That was something that was important to him with all of his friendships that he had. And, yeah, I think he would be very pleased. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're different ages. And, I mean, there's a, a base that's around, you know, mid-50-ish that have been fans for a long time. And then there's this big segment of younger fans. So that's great. We're in several different countries. It, it's just been... It's been a very satisfying part of my life over the years. But like I said, kind of dormant a little bit now, but that will change. So why don't we go ahead and just start with your story? Da-da-da. da story. Well, I, I had, I guess, always seen him like so many people had. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, you know, didn't really realize because my, my father loved movies, so we watched movies a lot. And, yeah, he... he Gave that love to me, and I still watch movies a lot. Maybe not as much as I did at some time, but... So we, you know, I was watching TV a lot late at night, and we were going to movies, so I know I had seen him all the time. But nothing, you know, he was just this guy in the movie, and this character in the movie, and nothing special. I know I saw Bookworm. I remember being very impressed, partially because he wore glasses, and I wore glasses. Yeah. That was... That was pretty cool for a six-year-old. Well, this guy on TV, he's wearing glasses. Look how fast he can read, and it was very impressive to me. So I remember, I remember that instance, but I don't remember the actor behind the character so much. So he was always there, and I know a lot of other fans said that. I know you said that, mm-hmm. but you can't remember, really remember a time he wasn't there. Yeah. But the time that 
that really changed things for me was in late 1972. Every morning as I was getting ready for school, we had the radio on, and I kept hearing this commercial every day. And I would sometimes, you know, they usually show it at the, play it at the same time of the morning, and I would go sit on the stairs to listen, and it would be this exciting new movie about this ship that capsizes on New Year's Eve. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I want to see that. You know, Mom and Dad, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. We didn't make it for a few months until it was warm enough that we could go to the drive-in because that was the big one of the big family activities was piling in the car with the snacks and the when it's warm enough the lawn chairs but not this time and going to the drive-in. So we're, I'm sitting there in the back seat, leaning on the back of the front seat, looking around around my parents and around the rear view mirror, and not not really the best way to see a movie, but you know mm-hmm. it was cheap and it was fun and we did it. So I'm watching this movie and, you know, it's interesting and I'm finding out the backstories of the characters and it's, you know, it's interesting. And then the song comes on that I'm familiar with that I've heard on the radio and I'm watching and there are these two guys talking and suddenly it's like, what? Oh, my, who is this? Something, mm-hmm. something drew me. I'm not sure what it was. The accent was interesting. Definitely. Mm-hmm. But I think it was his eyes that caught my attention. Mm, and I don't know eyes. how, I don't know why, I don't know how it came through the character. But it just overwhelmed me. And I kind of couldn't think of anything else for a while. <laughs> or maybe still. Uh, <laughs> I immediately, the, the next day, went out looking for magazines to find out who this person was. And became successful pretty early on because it was the 70s and body was in everything. And so I began collecting them and began checking the TV guide every day or every week, excuse me, to see when he was going to be on. And, of course, I would remember the whole week or, you know, because it was important. Mm-hmm. And some days, if you did a lot of game shows and talk shows in the 70s, and the game shows were off and on early in the day. The talk shows I could manage after school, but sometimes I had to be <coughs> I don't feel well today. I think I should stay home. <laughs> because Roddy was in something I just had to watch. And it, it was very annoying if it happened to be Hollywood Squares and he got you know, one question. And I stayed home all day for those. <laughs> didn't get to see him much, but it was something because yeah. we didn't have uh, videotapes. We didn't have YouTube. You couldn't just pull it up anytime you wanted to see it. You had to wait until something was broadcast. And so it was special. It was important. Uh, sometimes movies were on in the middle of the night. And my parents were, you know, they were pretty permissive in a lot of ways, but they weren't so good about that because they are the ones who had to get us up in the morning, I guess. Not good about us staying up late at night watching movies. So I would go to my best friend's house because we could work around her mom. She would sleep right through it. And we would watch the late night movies and then be dragging the next day in school because, you know, we've, we've had our, our Roddy fix that night. So it started then and it's gone on ever since. Of the movies that you saw, like you mentioned the Poseidon Adventure being the very first one and the one where you like finally noticed him. Uh-huh. What is your very favorite since the time that you noticed him and came to know who he was as a person to where you recognized him. What's what's your absolute go-to my, favorite? My absolute favorite, and I think it's probably a lot of fans' absolute favorite, 
is Lord Love a Duck. It's mm. my favorite movie overall, not just my favorite Roddy movie. I I love the movie. I've seen it probably hundreds of times. I can probably quote the whole movie. I use lines from it a lot in just everyday life. I'll say, it's the new map, Barbara Ann. Or I'll say, <laughs> um, I can't think of another one right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, what have I done to offend you? I say that a lot. <laughs> So it's just kind of a part of, of my life. Mm. And that is one of the ones I saw in the middle of the night. It probably came on at 2 in the morning. And I went to my best friend's house, and we watched, and we giggled, and we were very silly teenage girls. And hmm, interestingly, that hasn't really changed much for me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's got, you know, it's it's great for a fan because he's in most of the scenes. Yes. He dances. He has that laugh that mm. everybody just loves. He takes his shirt off and, and he wears those white pants. Mm. So there, there are just lots of, lots of things to latch onto. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always thought Barbara Ann was an idiot though. So why is she looking at this Bob guy when Alan is around there? Yes. I don't understand. You're just so stupid. But you know, she's kind of portrayed as not being very smart anyway. No. I figure that makes sense. Roddy even says in the beginning of the movie, poor, sweet, simple-minded Barbara Ann. Yes, yes. And, and believe me, I, I thought that many, many times. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's quite funny, though. And I think it's a movie that deserves more recognition. I think a lot of people, if they saw it, they would love it because yes. it's got so much. It's such a good commentary, even now, mm-hmm. on our society. I I just I wish you know maybe someday it will you know achieve more of a cult following than it has. Yeah, here's hoping. It It is definitely a film that, you know, people... I know for me, when I first saw it, I couldn't stop watching it. It was on YouTube. And yeah. so it comes on, and the theme song is really fun, and there's people dancing all over the place, and I'm like, ooh. And then Roddy comes on, and I was like, oh, he's beautiful. <laughs> and from like... That second on, I was hooked. And it it captivated me. And I think a lot of people would probably feel the same way. Roddy's Uh character in the film, you look at him and you think, oh, wow, you know, this guy's really got his head on straight. You know, he's all together. He's put together. And then it comes to the the beginning section of the movie. He's talking to a psychiatrist and she's frustrated with him because he doesn't see the, the pictures as dirty as she thinks they should be. And he's seeing all these beautiful things, like a beautiful grove with flowers and trees and butterflies. And she's throwing things at him, saying, you creep, you're not cooperating. And he goes, doctor, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> what are you hiding from? And he starts psychoanalyzing her. And you think, man, you know, why is this guy even seeing a psychiatrist? He's fine. And then you find out... You know, that he tried to kill a student, and then after on, you know, it gets to Barbara Ann, and he really does start killing people. But the way he plays it, I didn't even realize that he had actually killed all those people until at the end. So it's a movie that makes you stop and think. It keeps you interested, and it has little twists and turns. And that is the kind of film that keeps people interested today. A lot of the movies today are like that. Right. Now, I was just going to say that before you did that. It just twists and turns all over the place. When you think you know where it's going, mm-hmm. it just takes this left turn and goes somewhere else. Yep. 
and you, you don't expect it. You don't expect it when Barbara Ann's mother dies, although you kind of, you know, in a way you expect it, but it, it hits very mm-hmm. hard in, in a comedy. But, of course, it's a black comedy, so that, that's how they do it. Yeah. But it just takes this turn, and it, it keeps you guessing, mm-hmm. but it keeps you laughing, although it, it's just... it's. It's kind of got everything, like I said, a perfect movie. Yeah, and Roddy's performance is all over the place, too, just like the movie. Yes. And I was very struck by, you were mentioning the scene where Barbara Ann's mother dies. I was very struck by that scene because, I mean, even though he admits to the killing after it's done in his little commentary, you're watching it and you're thinking, oh, he just found her. And she comes into the room and she... You know, he says there's been an accident, Barbara Ann. And she comes into the room and it hits her. Oh my gosh, my mother's dead. And he reaches over and he goes, shh, it's okay. I'm going to take care of everything. That's what Molly Muck is for. And he's comforting her. And just the gentle tone in his voice, you think, oh, well, this is this is just terrible. He found her this way. And, you know, the next scene, he admits he killed her. And it's like, Wait, what? The character of Alan Musgrave is one that you can't completely figure out. And I love that about the roles that he plays when he plays characters like that because he does it so well. Well, he does play characters with, um, shall we say, certain psychological issues. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's very, he's very good at that. He is. If if his performance in, say, for instance, Ironside and Columbo are not proof of how well he plays characters that are unhinged, you know, I don't know what would be. <laughs> yeah, pretty unhinged. Especially, shock treatment, pretty unhinged. Yes. Shock treatment, especially like that opening scene Unhinged in my gallery too, actually. He yes. changed a lot. Yes. Well, I can I can understand I why they do on, that. Even like Dead of Winter. Mm-hmm. That guy is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. I remember I found an interview recently where Roddy was um, being interviewed about Dead of Winter. Primarily, I mean, they they started you know talking about his earlier work and Elizabeth Taylor even later on in Double Exposure. But in the beginning part, they played a clip of Dead of Winter, and they were discussing it. And the interviewer said that Roddy seemed very pleased with his performance. And Roddy said, you know, well, I just, I loved the fact that I was able to play this character because he is, as we British say, completely bonkers, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And he just enjoyed that essence so much. And you you can you can tell watching him in these films where he plays the the crazies. It's just he's got this glint in his eye. Like this is so much fun, you know. Mm-hmm. He's having a ball. I'm trying to think of when he starred the first of those crazy parts. I mean, and the, the one I'm thinking of is I mean, it's not crazy fun. It's crazy scary. But mm-hmm. in compulsion, he was crazy. Yeah. And, but I don't know if there were any movies before that or I mean, he was so young it's, a lot of that time. It seems to me that it, that the, the crazy parts in film 
began after compulsion. Yeah, and I think so too. It, it, see, it, probably because there were, I believe there were people from the television and film industry who were present for the show and saw his capability. Yeah. I mean, he was crazy in Heart of Darkness. Yes. For various reasons. And that would have been after. Yes. So a lot of the, a lot of the early television, he was crazy in the uh, Alfred Hitchcock, I can't remember the name of that one, the one with the, the old lady, he was crazy in that. Mm-hmm. So I know it was, you know, shortly after that he was doing a lot of that, but I can't think of anything before that. I'll have to, I'll have to research that. Oh dear. <laughs> in the writing files again. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure um, that it. Yeah, I think the very first like television thing with it was after Compulsion, which was Heart of Darkness. I believe you're right. And that's such another such an amazing performance. Yes. Uh, it should have been nominated for an Emmy, also. I think. Yes, I agree completely. You should not skip over it if you're a Roddy no, fan. No, absolutely not. It's something that has to be scene and it was one of the very first things that I saw that was television based of Roddy when I first got back into him back in March of this year after discovering the Planet of the Apes films I was like you know I wanted I want to see him in something totally different because I only remembered him in shows like Batman and Columbo Shows like that. Yeah. I had never really seen him in something different where he was something a little bit dramatic. younger. Something something dramatic, yeah. Where he was a little bit younger. And I had seen him in Murder, She Wrote, you know, when he was older. So I didn't have, like, a good memory of him when he was around my age. And I was like, I want to see, like, a 20-something Roddy. Let's see, you know, what he looks like. And so... I just looked him up on YouTube, and there was Heart of Darkness, the very first thing that came up. And The Tempest was right below it. I was like, hmm, okay. So I spent an afternoon watching these. And Heart of Darkness just bowled me over. I mean, from scene one, where he's on the boat, and the people are torturing him, trying to get him to to kill the rat, and he doesn't want to do it. And he's he's calling for help for Mr. Kurtz. Come help me. Praying as though he were God. And uh-huh. you can tell that there's this this vulnerability and misunderstanding in him that's been pre-programmed. You, you see that he's been trained to believe in this man as though he were God. And But you can also find him fighting to find his own belief and his own understanding. And when he comes home and he sees Maria again and they're reunited for the first time after years and they know that they love one another, but they don't know how to express it. And she wants him so desperately to try, but he won't because he's terrified. Just the vast motions that he goes through of the emotions from one spectrum to another within minutes just it, it was incredible to me. I was in tears by the the middle of the play, and uh-huh. I did not stop crying until the end. It it was just it was so beautifully played by him, and you know, talking about crying that's that's an attestment to how deeply he touches me because there are so many roles like that 
where oh yes yes absolutely i'll just burst into tears ironside was one of them he plays this this character who's so much like himself and i found that very interesting that the character that he played jamie was an ex-child actor who was struggling and roddy's character was older he was you know 43 at the time when it was done and that was one of the struggles of the character. He had been trying for 20 years to get back into show business and was stuck with this acting troupe on the stage and wanted nothing more than just to get back to L.A. And the the leader of the acting troupe that he's with just doesn't doesn't want to take him back to L.A., thinks he's too old, thinks he's past it. And he snaps and he kills him on stage. And at the end, when he confesses, on stage to Ironside about the murder, he just crumbles to his knees and he's talking about how, you know, he didn't want me. He tried to replace me, you know, and I'm better than him and he knew it. And, and he just starts crying and going, I won, I won. And, oh, every single time I'm, in tears. He plays characters that even though they've done something horrible, even though they're unhinged, they're crazy, you don't fear them. You love them. You feel sorry for them. You want to give them a hug and hold them. You're, you're, you're compassionate towards them because there's so much pain behind the characters he plays, and he did it so well. Yeah, he showed the vulnerability. Yeah. And that's, you know, a very important thing for humanity to realize that there's always another side. Yes. And that even when people do horrible things, there's usually some reason, even if it's a bad reason, and compassion is a better way to deal with it than anything else. Yes. And another very dramatic performance, I'm not sure if you've seen it, I think you maybe have The Wine Dark Sea. Yes. It's very powerful. Yes. And that that is that it's it's perfect that you brought that up too because that's another spectrum that people don't usually look at with a compassionate eye. He's playing a wino. Yeah. Well, people usually look at those types of people and just go ugh. They don't stop and ask why are you here? What happened to cause this? And they just think, oh, he's worthless. He's drinking himself into a stupor. And I loved the fact that the the character that he played fought against the alcoholism and brought himself out of it. And uh-huh. it wasn't an AA meeting movie. It was done in a way he brought himself out by himself because he realized his friend was murdered and he wanted to find out who did it and why. And try to bring his friends some justice. And it was incredible watching him play an alcoholic who was recovering. That scene in the middle of the episode that struck me the most was when he got a job after having relapsed, after going to the police the first time. And they told him, you're better off going back to Skid Row. Just, you know, we're not going to help you. We think you're crazy. And he got a job and was trying to pull himself out of it. And he's washing dishes in the back of a restaurant. And he stops what he's doing and he just drops to the floor and hit 
it, it just bowls me over every time. His face was red as a beet. And his lips were cracked and he was shaking from head to toe. And with soap-covered hands, he just reaches up and just puts his hand on his forehead and just rocks back and forth. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't start crying. He's just rocking back and forth, dealing with the shakes. And the pain is palpable. You can feel it with him. There's very few actors who give performances that can touch you the way that Roddy could touch you. He knew where the deepest human nerve was and he knew exactly how to get there and how to touch it so that people would always be like, wow, when they saw him. And he, he was one of a kind. It's a shame that people today don't have the same abilities that he did. I mean, in a way, that's a good thing because it keeps him unique. But he had a beautiful thing that I don't think we'll ever see again. Uh-huh. Yeah, between the innate ability and the training, and, you know, a lot of people nowadays, about what, including a lot of people who are very big stars making a whole lot of money, do not have the training behind it. They play the same part over and over, mm-hmm. and they don't have to dig. It's it, it seems a shame, too, because today's television has changed so much, you don't need talent to be a star no. these days. No. Which I think is a big part of why the entertainment industry has changed so much. All you have to do is have some sort of a gimmick and poof, we can make a reality show out of it and all of a sudden yeah, you're a billionaire. Exactly. exactly, exactly. And, you know, so, yeah, the acting was amazing, but the writing of that time when the live television started, it, it was just so different from what you get now. Yes. <laughs> They were taking chances, and um, yeah, they take chances now, but it just it isn't the same. It isn't, it isn't the, the same. same level of writing. It's not as intellectual mm-hmm. because the audience can't understand it. Yes. And that's, that's pretty sad. It is. Especially considering shows that were big at that time that are still poignant today, like the Star Trek series. I mean, people don't understand why those shows are still important today. And it was because of the writing, because of the uh-huh. risks that people took. Uh-huh. And the, the sneaking in and teaching you a lesson that you don't realize we're teaching you until it's too late. Yes. And then later on, they realize, oh, okay, that's what they were talking about. Cool. I have always been very curious to know, if Roddy were alive and with us today, what do you think that he would think about modern television. Do you think that he would be disappointed? I think, yeah, in a lot of ways he would. I mean, who wouldn't be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it's so much we're going to save the money on the acting and writing and just do reality shows that any hack can write and any person can quote, perform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, there's not the kind of opportunity for people to learn to act that mm-hmm. there was when he was in his 20s and really trying to learn. Yeah. Because you had all those anthology shows where there was, you know, there were great characters created and ways for you to learn. And there's there that now. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there's still some good writing on television, 
I won't deny that there is, but there's not the quantity that there was. Because the, the high quality, it stands out more because there's a little of it. So I, I think he would probably be disappointed in that aspect of it. He would be aware because he was, you know, in the business a long time that things do change, things do fluctuate. So maybe, you know, maybe we'll get back to a little more substance. Hopefully we've had enough of this before too much longer. Mm. And to have real shows that mean something instead of this crazy person that behaving in this strange way and people want to see it and they'll do anything to be on TV so they don't mind being embarrassed or right. not embarrassed even though they're doing embarrassing things because they want to be on TV. Okay, no. Mm-hmm. Now, I will admit I watch the cooking shows and I watch Dancing with the Stars so I'm contributing <laughs> to the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think Dancing with the Stars at least there's there's a reason behind it and that is enjoyable, and I think Roddy probably would have enjoyed that because he was a ballroom dancer for he a while as well. He could have been on it, and yes. that would have been amazing. Uh-huh. It would have been amazing to see him swinging somebody around on the dance floor <laughs> in a sparkly outfit. <laughs> Well, I think that pretty much will conclude our interview, my dear. I appreciate you coming on my show. Thank you so very much, and I hope that we can do this again. It was very fun. Well, thank you so much. I was honored to do it and happy to do it. And, yes, I will definitely do it anytime because talking about Roddy is kind of my favorite thing. Yes. <laughs> and since today is his special day, would you please wish Roddy a very happy 89th birthday? Happy, happy birthday, Roddy. And the cake is waiting. <laughs> because I make him a cake every year for his birthday. Aww. So we'll have a little piece of cake later. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. It was a blast. Yes, it was. Before I continue with the show, I must first mention that this podcast wouldn't be the wonderful show you've been enjoying without Julie. She helped me with my research for episode one on how green was my valley, provided the factual materials, pictures, and the letter Roddy wrote to Bronwyn Price for the show. So I must give her the credit she is due, as her hope of sharing Roddy with the world is part of what makes Not Just Yesterday the marvelous show it is. Thank you, Julie. I know that Roddy is proud to have you in his corner. At the beginning minutes of the show, I played a tributary montage of some of Roddy's most poignant performances. Those clips were just a taste of Roddy's amazing performance abilities, Later in the show, there will be more clips featured in Roddy's honor. But first, I would like to read Roddy's biography for you. His story is an amazing and inspiring one, and this tribute would be incomplete without its being told. Roderick Andrew Anthony Jude McDowell was born in the Beulah Hill region of South London on September 17, 1928. His parents were a 32-year-old World War I veteran of Scottish extraction, Thomas Andrew McDowell, and a 29-year-old Irish girl, Winifred Corcoran McDowell. They already had one child, a daughter, Virginia Grace, born on September 23, 1927. They lived in a nice, detached, two-story home at 204 Hearn Hill Road, London, SE 24. For the first 11 years of Roddy's life, all was well. His father owned a trucking company and provided well, and mother kept Roddy and Virginia busy seeing movies, reading, drawing, and otherwise doting on them. 
Noticing that her children were shy, Winifred enrolled them in elocution classes and started them acting in plays. When they, especially Roddy, started winning drama trophies, and people kept telling her how adorable they were and that they should be in movies, Winifred set herself the task of bringing it about. As a boy, Roddy was often praised for his impeccable manners and extensive vocabulary. Even then, he was very well-spoken and seemed adult in many ways. Even so, although he loved Shakespeare, he also loved Superman and true comics. In 1937, after a few inevitable false starts and disappointments, Roddy was signed with his first agent and began getting small roles in an occasional movie. Due to the child labor laws of the late 1930s, however, he was often sneaked into the studios around London while crouched on the floor of the automobile as it passed through the gates. He also did modeling and advertising spots. Most notably, he did magazine ads for Purcell, a popular detergent, and for various breakfast cereals. Before long, there was hardly a sign of his previous timidity. Roddy's schooling was at St. Joseph's College, Beulah Hill, Upper Norwood, S.E. 19, London, a Catholic boys' school run by the De La Salle brothers. The mission of the De La Salle brothers was to provide quality education for poor boys. Although Roddy was not exactly poor, a small fee was paid by the boys' parents. The curriculum was similar to other English boys' schools of the time. After age eleven, it was like high school. Today, boys eleven to eighteen attend, but in Roddy's day, younger boys attended. The uniform was a blue blazer, white shirt. And tie. All school blazers had the Star of Faith emblem embroidered on them. While at Hanover Academy of Dramatic Art, Roddy won five medals, six loving cups, and four certificates for dramatics. As children, Roddy and Virginia especially loved Kenneth Graham's *The Wind and the Willows* books, and they often called themselves after its characters. Roddy called himself Mr. Rat, which is ironic, considering Roddy later went on to portray Mr. Rat. Or Ratty in the animated film version of *The Wind in the Willows* in 1987. In 1939, World War II began when Ratty was 11 years old, and brought turmoil to the McDowell family in various forms. Most of them being Ratty himself. Ratty once accidentally set the family home on fire while staging with his toy soldiers the siege of Moscow by Napoleon's army. He reputedly burnt an entire wing of the house. Destroying a number of Virginia's dolls, Roddy, who was a compassionate and thoughtful brother to his older sister, felt horrible for this. And in an effort to make up for the accident, he gave her some of his toys to replace the ones that she had lost. Another time, Roddy and Virginia were playing store, and while pretending their store was enduring a robbery attempt, splashed paint all over the newly painted wall of the garage. Their mother was very understanding about this, though, and neither Roddy nor Virginia were punished. After the Nazi bombings of London began, Roddy collected shrapnel and other relics. His parents had a hard time keeping him inside during the air raids because he was so interested in watching things from the yard. He used to take his spyglass out to watch the Nazi planes sparring with the RAF Spitfires and to see the bombs falling. He was said to have described a good air raid as one that did damage and a bad raid as one that didn't hit much of anything. Roddy said that the bombs whistle like a thousand people screaming. One of Roddy's favorite pastimes after school was to roam Westminster Abbey, and had been allowed to sit in the king's stall and in Kitchener's once. But he always was worried for it during the German air raids on London. He was constantly terrified for the safety of his favorite place. 
He was therefore indignant, heartbroken, and outraged when the abbey was finally hit and damaged by a bomb one day. When he learned that his precious abbey had been damaged in the raid, he shouted, I hate Hitler, and then he ran to his room and cried for hours. The family often crouched in a cupboard below the stairs during air raids when they were at home, and Virginia recounted times that she and Roddy had to sleep there in order to remain safe. One of Tom's trucks was hit by a bomb, the driver was killed, and only a fragment of the sign survived, which Roddy saved and brought with him to America. He also brought with him a fragment of shrapnel and carried it around in his pocket for a number of years. One day during the Blitz, their home was hit by bombs, and one fell through the bathroom roof. This excited Roddy at first as he thought perhaps he mightn't have to bathe for a while. It was at this point that his father made the decision to have his wife and children immigrate to the United States for their own safety, and he enlisted in the war effort. Tom had a difficult time getting permission from U.S. immigration to send his family to live in America for the duration of the war. They had planned to live with relatives in White Plains, New York, but fate had other ideas. When Roddy realized that they could not take their pets with them to America, he was very upset. V would later sometimes tease him about this. The pets were a parrot, who for some reason disliked Roddy, though Roddy adored him, and a cat called Marudi, who would often hide in the family's bookcase whenever the air raid sirens would sound, and he would stay there until the all-clear sounded. Roddy also knew he would miss his granny, and the housekeeper Alice, and her husband George. He knew they had to leave for their own safety, however, and didn't fuss about preparing to go. The day finally came for them to leave, and Roddy had to say goodbye to his father on the Liverpool docks. He understood, tacitly anyway, that he would now be the man of the family while Tom served in the Merchant Marines. Roddy and his father were very close and good companions, and he missed him terribly while separated from him. Just before they were to board on the Scythia in Liverpool to embark for America, Roddy, trying to be helpful, revealed to British customs officials that Winifred had a flashlight hidden in a roll of carpet. During the trip over the Atlantic, they were often in grave danger of getting torpedoed. One day, V and Roddy spotted submarines, Roddy mistook them for dolphins at first, some of which were likely German, passed by the ship. Roddy expressed a keen desire that the German ones would get sunk. V was outraged. But people will be killed if that happens. Roddy said in reply, Of course. He also met H.G. Wells on their journey, but didn't really hit it off with him. In order to stave off boredom, both for her children and the other passengers, Wynne decided to take advantage of her adorable children's talent for performing and put on a production of Puck and the Fairy aboard ship one night. Virginia mentioned in Roddy's A&E biography that, quote, Mother just happened to have the costumes with her, unquote. The play was a smash. V later said Roddy was so darling and adorable and made such a massive impression on the audience aboard ship that a story later appeared in the paper about the play, featuring a photograph of Roddy in costume as Puck, standing next to V, dressed as the fairy. In September of 1941, they arrived in New York, having only $42 with them, as this was all the British government allowed them to take out of the country. The nightlit city of New York worried Roddy terribly, but he remained brave and soon adjusted. Within two weeks, Roddy had an American agent, who suggested that he audition for a role in The Yearling, he did, making the audition in New York City. But the studio felt he was too English and wasn't right for the part. But someone at the audition mentioned that 20th Century Fox was looking for a young boy to play in an upcoming epic called How Green Was My Valley, and suggested Roddy audition for that. He did. And although Roddy was thoroughly exhausted, he read very well and impressed those who auditioned him. 
Two or three days later, he was asked to make a screen test at 20th Century Fox Studios on 56th Street. After this was done, Roddy, Fee, and Wynne took a trip to Washington, D.C. to visit Wynne's brother. While in D.C., but before they had time to do much sightseeing, they got a telegram from Fox telling them Roddy was wanted to do another screen test for the film, and they were asked to come out to California. Roddy, Wynne, and V were put up by the studio at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and Roddy did the second screen test for John Ford and Daryl Evzanik. Roddy got the part of Hugh and was given a contract at Fox. The McDowells now had to find permanent accommodations. Roddy was almost immediately put to work, and the family bought a house on Dunlear Drive in the Cheviot Hills area of Los Angeles. His first American film was Manhunt, in which he played a ship's cabin boy, Vayner, who helps hide Walter Pidgeon's character from his Nazi enemies. He next did Confirm or Deny. These small roles, though his part as Albert Perkins in Confirm or Deny was considerably larger than that of Vayner in Manhunt, took up his time before How Green Was My Valley went into production in June 1941. The film had a good deal of trouble getting off the ground, but once it reached its completion and was released, it was a smash hit. Roddy was now a star and continued working steadily at Fox for the next five years. With his father still away at war, Roddy felt that he was responsible for earning the family's income. In 1945, World War II came to an end, and Thomas McDowell immigrated to the United States to be reunited with his family. At last, the McDowells were all back together again. Though Roddy was thrilled to have his father back home, he was still worried about the future. When his agent informed him, upon his turning 17, that he had outgrown the movies and probably wouldn't be able to work again because he just wasn't cute anymore, Roddy's worries peaked higher than ever before. How could he provide for his family if he couldn't be an actor? Roddy was determined to prove his agent wrong and took every acting job made available to him but was frustrated by the fact that he was repeatedly being made to play awkward adolescents. Now nearly 18, Roddy wanted roles with more meat. In an effort to help her son, Wynne negotiated with Fox to release Roddy from his contract. She was successful, but didn't realize she had now caused a major problem for her son. He was now out of work and didn't know how to continue being the family's principal breadwinner. No other major studio would hire him, feeling he was too awkward and gawky-looking to be fitted for a leading part. He managed to get a contract with a third-rate studio called Monogram, a part of Hollywood's infamous Poverty Row, and would make several films during the next five years with them, most notably Tuna Clipper and Killer Shark. One positive that occurred while working on these two films, however, was when Roddy met and became friends with another former child star, Dickie Moore. The two had much in common. Both had been treated rather shabbily by their studios, and had lost their childhoods to their parents' itch for their children to gain fame. Roddy hated all of the films he did for Monogram, but later felt hopeful when Kidnapped began production. Now 20 years old, and working as the youngest executive producer in history for the studio, he felt that the film might be a promising one, and cast his mother as the innkeeper in the movie. Roddy's high hopes were dashed, however, as Kidnapped didn't turn out so well due to the shoestring budget allowed for it. But he was later able to get work with Orson Welles in his stage production of Macbeth, and then later reprised his role as Malcolm Macduff in the film in 1948. The next two years of difficulty and struggle snailed by, and Roddy became more and more frustrated. He had no life of his own. 
His mother was controlling every aspect of his life, and he was becoming more and more concerned for his future. By 1950, Roddy left Monogram. The time had come to move forward alone, and in 1951, Roddy, now 22 years old, moved to New York City. Though he felt incredibly guilty about this decision, Roddy knew he needed to get away from his mother and Hollywood in order to find himself and discover what he really wanted to do with his life. He thought he wanted to be a character actor, but wondered if he could be successful, as he felt that he didn't know how to act very well. But acting was something he loved, and therefore, he wished to learn how to do it better, another reason for his desire to move to New York City. Since he'd long had photography as a hobby, so much so that it was an expensive one, he started investigating the possibility of becoming a professional photographer. While searching for information regarding this idea, he got a call from a man at the lab where he'd been sending his pictures for development. The man told him that he had a good eye and should not be sending his pictures there to be processed. Roddy went to meet the man and then worked for six months in the darkroom at the lab, learning how to do everything. At some point during his training, he had an allergic reaction to the chemicals, but persisted despite his discomfort. Later on, he learned a lot from talking with Richard Avedon and Elliot Elisifan, observing and studying their pictures. While studying photography, Roddy also studied acting under such luminaries as Mira Rostova and Bobby Lewis, meanwhile working steadily in theater productions, both on and off Broadway. He also discovered acting in television, and from 1951 to 1954, was doing one television show per year. Soon he graduated from his schooling on his craft and began working more steadily in television, but still working consistently on stage. His stage credits during the years of 1950 to 1960 are staggering, as he worked in 23 productions during this 10-year period. He began gaining critical acclaim and adulation for his stage work when he starred as Bentley Summerhays in George Bernard Shaw's Miss Alliance in 1953 on Broadway. The production ran for a total of 16 performances from February 18th to March 1st that year. The reviews of his performance were superb and led to his being cast in The Tempest by the American Shakespeare Festival, where he played Ariel the Sprite and later Octavian in Julius Caesar. Soon word spread like wildfire of Roddy's dramatic capabilities, and in 1957, Roddy was cast as Artie Strauss in the controversial drama Compulsion, based on the infamous Leopold and Loeb murder trial. In 1960, Roddy's work in theater gained him two prestigious awards for Best Supporting Actor, a Tony for the stage production of The Fighting Cock, where he starred alongside Rex Harrison, and an Emmy for his performance in the NBC production of Not Without Honor. In the fall, he became a part of the production of Camelot, alongside Julie Andrews and Richard Burton, playing the evil Sir Mordred. The play was a success, and Roddy was now finding himself a celebrated performer in television and on stage. He was now ready to return to Hollywood and take up where he had left off. In 1961, Roddy was asked to reprise his role as Octavian in 20th Century Fox's upcoming production of Cleopatra, where he would be working once again with Richard Burton and Rex Harrison. He agreed, but the production was fraught with problems, which kept many of the main actors, including its star, Roddy's best friend Elizabeth Taylor, out of work and lying around on the set waiting to be used in a scene, any scene. This resulted in Roddy and Richard Burton, who was also a close friend of Roddy's, being given cameo roles in The Longest Day in order to stave off boredom. Finally, Cleopatra wrapped and hit theaters in 1963 after being in production for over two years. Roddy's role as Octavian, though only a supporting role, gained him the attention of the Academy, and he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance. 
Unfortunately, a careless clerical error cost him his award. He received nothing more from the Academy than a written letter of apology for the mistake and was never given an opportunity to win an Oscar ever again. Fans at the time, and to this very day, still feel this was a grave injustice committed against him. Roddy was disappointed by the loss of this major award, but as was characteristic of his nature, he remained stoically silent about the incident and never spoke about it publicly. Through the 1960s, Roddy worked steadily in movies and television, appearing on average in five to seven films and one to two television performances each year with 1961 being an exception due to the holdup with Cleopatra. Behind the camera during all these years, Roddy had been snapping pictures wherever he went and had gathered up an extensive collection of photographs of his friends and other celebrities he was asked to photograph. And when Roddy sold a picture he had taken of Judy Holliday to Vogue magazine in 1960, he was able to gain a career as a professional photographer, working for some of the country's most respected magazines. In 1966, Roddy compiled a collection of the photographs he had been taking over the years of Hollywood's most notably celebrated names and published them in a series of four coffee table books, which he called Double Exposure. Roddy was now not only a celebrated actor, but a well-known and highly respected photographer, and had finally found true happiness for himself and his career. He now only had one dream left to achieve, to be a director. In 1968, Roddy found unbridled success once again when he took on the role of an ape called Cornelius in the first installment of the Planet of the Apes saga. Playing alongside Charlton Heston, Roddy's character was a scientist in a post-apocalyptic Earth that had been completely turned upside down. The roles in society are reversed, and apes are now in complete control, while humans are kept in cages and are now used as slaves and pets and are experimented on in medical and scientific research. In this Earth, the humans are incapable of speech, are non-intelligent, and are seen the way animals are seen in a zoo. But when three astronauts crash land on the planet, Cornelius and his fiancée Zira soon learn that the future holds something different for ape kind. Siding with Heston's character of Taylor, Cornelius and Zira are accused of heresy and deposed from their positions of prominence. The movie was a smash hit, and Roddy was soon asked to return for the sequel, beneath the Planet of the Apes. But at this point, he had begun production on his very first directorial project, The Ballad of Tam Lin, starring Ava Gardner and then newcomer Ian McShane, and he was unavailable to reprise the role of Cornelius. He was therefore temporarily replaced for the second film and carried on with fulfilling his dream of being a director. Tam Lin was a labor of love for Roddy. He had created it with Ava Gardner in mind. Gardner was an actress Roddy both revered and worshipped, and he tailor-made the role of Michaela Cazaret, or Mickey, for her. But the production ran out of money, and Roddy was not able to make it to the full scale he had originally desired. The film wasn't horribly affected, however, and Roddy was able to sell it to American International Studios. This was a mistake, however, which Roddy learned far too late as American International was a studio notorious for screwing over its clients. Without Roddy's knowledge or permission, AI cut the film to pieces and released it under the alternate title of The Devil's Widow in an attempt to make it a horror film. Roddy was outraged and attempted to have his name removed from the opening credits, but failed. Subsequently, when the butchered film did badly at the box office, it wasn't American International that received the criticism, but McDowell himself. 
Again, as was usual of his character, Roddy remained publicly silent about the disappointment. He never directed again. In 1971, Roddy was able to return to the Planet of the Apes franchise, and finally reprised his role as Cornelius in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. In 1972, he returned again to play Caesar, the son of Cornelius and Zira, who had sacrificed themselves to ensure their baby could live. And in 1973, he returned as Caesar again to play in the final installment of the five-movie saga. But that wasn't the end of Planet of the Apes. The movies were wildly successful, which sparked interest in the creation of a television series. Once again, Roddy was cast in a leading role, this time playing Galen, an assistant to Dr. Zaius, who becomes a fugitive while helping two astronauts in their journey to return home. The show was mildly successful, but lacked the steam and creative talent it needed to keep the storyline fresh and consistent, and it was canceled after 14 episodes. This was not a big deal for Roddy, however, and he continued working steadily throughout the remainder of the 1970s, working in a melting pot of various projects, many of which kept recycling around the premise of science fiction. His credits from the 1970s include cult classic movies and television appearances in such titles as Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Legend of Hell House, Miracle on 34th Street, Funny Lady, The Fantastic Journey, another aborted sci-fi TV series, this time produced by the people behind Star Trek, The Cat from Outer Space, another Disney flick, Wonder Woman, The Love Boat, Heart to Heart, Mork and Mindy, and The Black Hole. The Black Hole was a Disney film with a major departure from its usual fluffery, in the sense that it was a science fiction film with a very dark premise at the base of its storyline. Roddy voiced a robotic helper called Vincent, an anagram, rather than a proper name, on board a spaceship named the USS Palomino. Vincent's main job on board was to help with keeping the ship intact, as well as communicating telepathically with the ship's medical officer, played by Yvette Mimio. When the Palomino discovers a black hole that has swallowed a lost ship, the team goes to investigate, only to discover the ship holds a dark and frightening secret. The movie was the very first Disney film ever to receive a PG rating and had a controversial ending, which shows the villain of the film roasting in the fires of hell while the heroes fly into heaven in an escape pod. Roddy's character had a sidekick in the middle of the film called Bob, another anagram named Robot, played by Slim Pickens. Neither one of them received credit for their voice work in the film. The 1980s brought the same for Roddy, working in television and films and still cranking out up to a total of nine projects a year. In 1982, he became involved in another soon-to-be-aborted TV series called Tales of the Gold Monkey, which was created by Donald P. Belisario. The series didn't do well, lasting for only 22 episodes, but it became a fan classic and is available on DVD today. By the late 1980s, Roddy began another side career, lending his unique speaking voice as the narrator for audiobooks. He also began working in a plethora of children's animated cartoons, lending his voice to characters in series such as Superman, Batman the Animated Series, where he played Jarvis Tetch, aka the Mad Hatter, one of the Joker's many Arkham Asylum sidekicks. He also did a few episodes in the popular children's series The Animaniacs, where he voiced a gerbil called Snowball in the Pinky and the Brain segment of the cartoons. In 1987, Roddy released his second installment of photography books, Double Exposure Take Two, which received great acclaim. Later that year, he again put on his executive producer's hat, 
and worked alongside Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell in the screwball comedy Overboard. In the 1990s, Roddy began working most steadily in made-for-TV movies and cartoon voice work. He still did regular films as well and continued with his photography projects. Double Exposure Takes Three and Four were released in 1992 and 1993. Also in 1992, Donald P. Belisario contacted Roddy to do a guest appearance on his new and successful series, Quantum Leap, where he was to play semi-alongside longtime friend and fellow child star, Dean Stockwell. Roddy played a character called Edward Sinjin V and was to be a replacement for Dean's character of Al Calavici in an alternate timeline. This occurs when Sam, played by Scott Bakula, who has leaped into his friend, almost fails in his attempt to prevent Al from being sent to the gas chamber after he's been wrongfully accused of murder. Roddy appears in a few scenes, holding Al's gummy bear mimicking handlink, communicating to the parallel hybrid replacement for Ziggy, called Alpha. He successfully helps Sam prevent Al's death in the gas chamber and disappears without a wink or a goodbye, and the episode comes to a happy end. Unfortunately, this left us Roddy fans sighing with disappointment that we wouldn't get to see our favorite person again, despite our being thrilled for Al's insured safety in the episode. In April of 1998, Roddy, who had been smoking since his late teens, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and was given six months to live. Despite this horrible news, Roddy continued doing what he loved best, working, and kept taking on roles in TV, film, voiceovers, and on stage. His final stage performance was as Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, a role in which he alternated with another actor, Hal Linden. The production ran from November 18, 1997 to January 4, 1998. In 1997, Roddy learned that his film, The Ballad of Tam Lin, was in talks to be released on videotape for the first time. Eager to see his film released the way he had intended, he conducted an exhaustive and extensive search for the original negatives that had ended up on American International's cutting room floor. His search was successful, and he was able to edit the film the way he had originally wanted to. It was released on videotape later that year, and has since been transferred to DVD. Roddy's edit of the film can easily be found under the name The Ballad of Tam Lin whereas copies of American International's Disaster are still to be found under the name The Devil's Widow. Despite his difficulties, Roddy was able to win the battle for his film in the end. Roddy's final television performance was voicing Dr. Hugh Trevor in the episode Deadlock on Godzilla the series. The episode aired on February 6, 1999. Roddy died on October the 3rd, 1998. During his lifetime, Roddy McDowell worked in 36 stage performances, 262 total film and television performances, 114 appearances as himself on television in interviews, narrations for biographies, and appearances in game shows, seven executive producer credits, one director's credit, four soundtrack contributions, one camera and electrical department credit for his work on That's Entertainment 3, seven credits of thanks for his work on documentaries, the documentary of Cleopatra was dedicated to his memory, 40 audiobooks, six recorded songs for musical productions, 38 radio appearances, and countless photographic contributions to various forms of print, film, and television. Thank you to Julie Carricker for helping me write this biography. 
Without your extensive knowledge, I would have some massive gaps in the bio. Thank you. As you can see, Roddy is the definition of achieving your dreams. What a wondrous legacy he has left behind. And now, here's the big moment. If you're willing, feel free to sing along as we all sing happy birthday to Roddy. When you wake up, send me Request from another viewer who asks, What kind of a hobby does a young movie star like you pursue? Well, uh, let me see. I don't quite know where to start. My mother's always threatened to throw me out of the house. I have so many hobbies. I have stuff crowded all over the house besides my own room. Uh, my main collection of books is in this corner here uh, to do with the uh, screen and also with uh, the stage, this whole section here. The reason that I collect all these things on uh, stage and screen is because uh, I hope one day to be a director, and I'm very much interested in the uh, past history of both my business, and uh, I, I, I like to learn about it. sweetness and light, stay by my side. We will go out in the morning Circling your sweet head Happy birthday, beautiful In the streets of this day Play a song, play a song Happy birthday, beautiful In the streets of this day
For the remaining time I have left today, I will play several clips from some more of Roddy's most memorable performances as the end of the show, thereby letting Roddy's brilliance speak for itself. Password. What is this shot you've been doing all day with Elizabeth, Roddy? Well, I'm sort of a rat in the film, you see, and I did something in the story that wasn't very nice. And then I stand in front of Elizabeth and she has to haul off and slap me. In the face. In the face. So all day long, we waited to do one thing, the last shot tonight, you see. And she slapped me. You tell it. Well, it, you see, I've been hitting him all day long, the way you do, you know, because you have to do it over and over and over again. And uh, so the last shot, the director said, let's just get it one more time in close-up, you know. So the camera is behind me and Roddy's facing me, and he turns to me and he looks very evil. And I haul off and give him such a slap. And he looks at me, and, you know, with this hatred and fury, and spits out teeth. All the teeth. <laughs> What happened? They had been, it was a, they planned it all day long to do this. To me. It, Roddy had sat in his dressing room and cut up lifesavers all day long. I thought I was going to die. My, I thought, oh my God, I knocked out all of his teeth. So now we'll play Password and she's a little shook for no while. The Carol Burnett Show. Having Roddy around all week is a treat for the ears as well as for the eyes. A treat for the ears. Oh, yes, yes. Just listening to Roddy speak is a joy for me. Your enunciation is absolutely impeccable. Oh, that's, that's very nice of you, Carol. Thank you very much. That's true. But, listen, that is purely a matter of training. Oh. See, all English actors are weaned on Peter Piper's practical principles of plain and perfect pronunciation. Could you die? <laughs> Did you hear how trippingly that flowed? Oh, but it's, it's simple, Carol. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very simple. You. you could do that. No, no, it's not so simple from a person, for a person from San Antonio, Texas. Oh, of course it is. All it is is a matter of uh, just a little re-education of their lips and their tongue. Yeah? Well, sure. No, well, I don't know. Well, surely you must have learned some tongue twisters back there in Texas. Oh, well, yeah, simple ones, though, like she sells seashells by the seashore or a big black bug bit a big black bear. Yeah, S- I could do simple. That. That's not simple. Isn't it? No, not at all. I think you're ready for higher education. Good. <laughs> yeah, try this one. Uh, the seething sea seetheth. Thus, the seething sea suffices us. Oh. <clears throat> what? The seething sea seetheth. Thus, the seething sea suffices us. The seething sea seetheth. Thus, the seething sea suffices us. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, uh, uh, you want a long in? All right. All right. Try this one. Um, uh, Theophilus Thistledown, the successful thistle sifter, in sifting a sieve of unsifted thistles, thrust 3,000 thistles through the thick of his thumb. <laughs> now, if Theophilus Thistledown, the successful thistle sifter, in sifting a sieve of unsifted thistles, thrust 3,000 thistles through the thick of his thumb, watch the thou. In sifting a sieve of unsifted thistles, do not thrust 3,000 thistles through the thick of thy thumb. <laughs> No way, no way. All right. Uh, well, then try a short one. How about uh, toy boat? Toy boat? And uh, No, Carol, you've got to say it over and over and over, not just once. Oh, well, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. Look, do you see the gentleman down there? Yeah. What's your name? Gert. Gert? Gert? Let me hear you do toy boat. <laughs> Toy boat. Real fast. Toy boat. <laughs> 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 
You know, you can do it with every letter in the alphabet. Yeah? Sure. Try, uh, Billy Button bought a butter biscuit. Oh, Billy Button bought a biscuit. If you, would you mind if I sing it? Oh, well, there's just music. All right, all right. <clears throat> Billy Button bought a buttered biscuit. Did Billy Button buy a buttered biscuit? If Billy Button bought a buttered biscuit, where's the buttered biscuit Billy Button bought? Uh, that's excellent. Try this one. Okay. Uh, Captain Crackscomb cracked his cousin's cockscomb. Will you knock that? <laughs> Come on, you've got to be ruthless. Uh, Come on. All right. Captain Crackscomb cracked his cousin's cockscomb. Did Captain Crackscomb crack his cousin's cockscomb? If Captain Crackscomb cracked his cousin's cockscomb, where's his cousin's cockscomb, Captain Crackscomb? <laughs> Here's one. Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bit of better butter, that would make my batter better. So she bought a bit of butter, better than her bitter butter. And she put it in her batter, and the batter was not bitter. So twas better, Betty Botter bought some better Remember this one. What? A flea and a fly and a flu. Yes. In prison said, what shall we do? Let us fly, said the flea, let us flee, said the fly, so they flew through a floor on the flu. Ah. Wonderful. What? Oh, you're too much. You like that one, huh? Yeah. Oh, well, here, here is the piece de resistance. Oh, all right. Okay. <coughs> Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. That sounds curiously familiar. For Moses, he noses his toeses aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toeses to be. Moses supposes his toeses are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A Moses is a rose, a rose is a rose. Supposes his toes couldn't be a lily or a daffodilly. Gotta be a rose, cause it rhymes with mose. There are others lines we miss. Words to give your tongue a twist. If you're looking for fun, simply sing silly, happy, happy songs like the ones we saw. Twins, twin sisters sing tongue twisters too. Invaders. The experiment. He was murdered, Mr. Lindstrom. I'm sorry. Perhaps if I had been with him, or if I had gained his confidence sooner. Did you hear me when I said your father was... I heard. Oh, Mr. Vincent, I think that you are disturbed. I think you are even more disturbed than my father was. So sure your father was disturbed. There are no doubts, no fears. A plane blew up. His own automobile went over a cliff three days later, and you're so certain. I cannot understand your concern over the death of a man you hardly even knew. Now, my father could not have been murdered. I was the only one who knew where he was, the only one, and I certainly didn't tell any. Oh. 
Oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh, my God, no. Mr. Lindstrom, who did you tell? No, they were... They were government agents. They showed me their credentials. They... What do you want? Your father called me just before the accident. He left a message at my hotel saying he had proof, documentary evidence, that there are invaders from another planet here on Earth. I've got to have that proof. It must be found before they could destroy it. You, you think I know where he hid it? Did it ever occur to you that the men who... No, 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 they didn't get it. Because I know that. When I went back to my hotel after the accident, my room had been ransacked, turned upside down. Now, Lloyd, I need your help. I've got to have that proof. Please, trust me. Help me to find it. but I I simply can't do anything until tomorrow morning I must be alone with my father now certainly Stay close to him. Oh, oh my. These, these headaches ever since Maryland. It'll all be over soon, my son. The legend of Hell House. When was the house built? I don't know. Mr. Fisher. 1919. I get the impression that you know quite a bit about Belasco. Would you mind sharing it with us? His first name was Emmerich. He was born on March the 23rd, 1879. He was the illegitimate son of an American munitions maker. What did he look like? His was a frightening visage. Like the face of a demon that had taken on some human aspect. Are you quoting? Yes, I am. That is his second wife. She committed suicide in this room in 1927. How tall was he? Uh, he was six foot five. They called him the Roaring Giant. What did he do to make this house so evil, Mr. Fisher? Drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, bestiality, mutilation, murder, vampirism, necrophilia, cannibalism, but not to mention a gamut of sexual goodies. But shall I go on? How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. It's about to end, Mr. Fisher.
What happened, Mr. Velasco? No one knows. When relatives of the guests had this house broken into in 1929, they found all of them dead from one cause or another. Twenty-seven in all. Velasco was not among them. If no one objects, I'd like to try sitting tonight. I have no objection. Would you care to sit in the morning, Mr. Fisher? I'm not ready yet. Ben, I've been thinking. Give think up. Give up. What's happened? I thought we trusted each other. I don't trust anyone or anything. And anyone who does in this house is a fool. Something has happened. Lots of things. Nothing we can't handle. Wrong. There is nothing in this house that we can handle. That's not true. We've made wonderful progress. Toward what? Our graves? Well, Daniel, for instance, and the way that Pelasco works. Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, how do you know he ever even existed? The body, Ben. Is that your proof? How do you know you haven't been deluding yourself? How do you know that he isn't just a figment of your imagination? How do you know his personality isn't exactly what you made of it? How do you know? I just know I'm right. Yes, and we all knew we were right in 1953, too. <laughs> Grace Lauder, a successful medium for... For 20 years. She jumped off the balcony and she shattered both her legs. Dr. Graham, physicist, he crawled out of this house to die. Professor Rand, head of the chemistry department at the University of Oxford, paralyzed. Professor Fenley, psychic investigator, crippled and insane to this day. Yes, sir. You're right. I am obstructing. You're quite right. I'm shut off. I am going to stay shut off until I am far away from this place. I am going to collect my 100,000 and I uh, am never going to come within a thousand miles of this house for as long as I live. And I suggest you do the same. Fantasy Island, The Devil and Mr. Rourke. Rourke, <laughs> you have come to my party. How nice. 
brought your lovely godchild. Can I get you a drink? No, thank you. Loosen up, war. I'm not here on business. I'm taking a few days off. A vacation? You? Even the devil needs his rest. Oh, I cannot tell you how tiring it is doing evil day in, day out. Yes, poor Satan. Uh, burnout must be an occupational hazard in your profession, yes. Well, I would be delighted to arrange for your early retirement. Believe me, Raw, I would love to step down. But what can I do? There is such a demand for my services. Yes, but you did not come to Fantasy Island to trap such easy prey, did you? <laughs> do you know my mind? No, but I know your game. It never changes. You are after my immortal soul. Yours? Oh, God. What ego? There are other souls here that are worth having too, you know. I did warn you that we would meet again, didn't I? This time, I will win. I'll bet you don't. Julie, it is most unwise to wager with the devil. Why don't you join me at the party? Oh, I can show you some real action. You get away from me. Very well. We'll talk later. When your keeper is not around. <laughs> Are you going somewhere? To see Mr. Rourke. He'll know how to deal with you. But he's not your master anymore. I am. Never. But you made a deal with me to save that girl. Only after you trapped her, you were going to let her die. Nevertheless, we have a contract. It's the standard form. I did your bidding, now it is your turn to do mine. You will never have power over me. I already have. You belong to me. Ironside. Murder Impromptu. Are you sure you can't use one of these? No, thank you. Okay. Quite a collection. Hmm? You have quite a collection. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. And they are all of me. Age 6 to 16. That's when I outgrew the movies. But, you know, so my agent said. Or the movies outgrew me. I've seen quite a few of your movies. On the Late Late Show, I'll bet. You must have hundreds of pictures. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that may sound silly, but uh, outside of my clothes, these are the only things I take with me when I move from hotel to hotel. Perhaps it's kind of stupid, but... Uh, they're my family. They are my kids. Yes, 
You see, I never had any children of my own, so I adopted me. I can understand it. Can you? You don't think uh, it's a little narcissistic, maybe? Uh, that's what my ex-wife used to say. Uh, she um, got tired of my living in the past. She wanted me... Uh, she kept harping on me to go into real estate. <laughs> me and real estate. Can you imagine? Real estate. <sighs> I am an actor. And a good one. Well, you say. I say. Let's hope those guys down in Hollywood say. Which, of course, they will when I get back there again and show them what I can do. Look, I, uh, I am really going to hit them hard. Look here. Very impressive. Yeah, I, I took one in both trades. See? That's the way you do it. It costs a lot, but I tell you, it does pay off. I wanted to open in Los Angeles so three years ago, but Lenny, he said we had to wait till we were ready. Ready. I have been ready for 20 years. He told me that I couldn't play with uh, our gang anymore. Get lost, shrimp, he said. The last night backstage, just before he went on. Yeah, he said, uh, we're not going to take you to L.A., Jamie. We found a new boy. A new boy, Jamie, not an old man. A new boy who can improvise. Yeah, not an old man who can't think on his feet. Yeah, he said that to me. After all I've done for him, he said that. He said that to me. <laughs> you see, I hate him. The Danny K Show. All of these, all of these pictures were taken by our young photographer guest, who is an equally good actor, ladies and gentlemen, Roddy McDowell. I'll call him Rowdy. <laughs> a friend of mine ne has never called him Rowdy yet. Call him, he said, what's Rowdy doing? If you had your choice, what would you rather do? Be an actor or, or a photographer? Both. That, that's a very, very honest answer, and I certainly come... It's true. Well, I mean, if you had to do one. Both. <laughs> I would. I can't answer it, you know, because I really would like... I really enjoy doing both equally as much. I'm surprised you haven't been killed. Why? Or hit. Because I used to take pictures, I used to go to parties, and I'd say, oh, listen, I'm going to take some pictures. And by the time, you know, I would walk in the door with cameras, people would be chasing me out of the house. Oh, I do have a wonderful collection of, uh, of people I photograph yeah? too much who say, no, no more, you know, all those. Yeah, he's got all the big movie stars saying, no! It's <laughs> a marvelous way. Listen, you, you told me a story about something that happened to you in Germany, remember? Oh, in Munich, pictures? yes. Yeah. Well, those experiences... Are you going to write that down in your book? 
No, no, I'll tell you, though. All right. Yeah, I went... Uh, tell me, because nobody else... Nobody else is listening. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I went to... Uh, <laughs> I went to Munich last year, and I'm a, I'm a history nut. And so I decided I would go off and photograph the town hall of Munich, which is very beautiful. They've got this fantastic clock tower. Oh, oh, that's the one where the thing yeah. goes in. Very intricate. Ten o'clock, only once a week. Uh, Ten o'clock every Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, for about five minutes, the clock chimes and figures come out and dance and everything else. And I went there. Everybody collects there who is interested in photography. I would imagine everybody who's got a camera in the world yeah. is it. From Minox to Imo, they're there. And I was playing it very cool, you know, because um, uh, I was where everybody was setting up. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And just as the clock began to chime I squatted for my great shot the only thing was that my pants split from stem to stern right to the waistband <laughs> the noise was so deafening it was like <laughs> that I shot up from the shot and they fell my pants right to the pavement and there I was this was the start of Ronnie's beautiful portrayal of Caesar Hail Caesar Glorious Flavius <laughs> I think you know Ronnie took some pictures of me and then uh, they're in a photography book, which is one of the most exquisite books I think I've ever seen in my life, about anything. Thank you. No, it's really true. These are the, the, the great, the near great, the not so great, a, a lot of very interesting people. And Roddy came to my house, oh, a long time ago, and he was taking pictures of me while I was cooking Chinese food. And at precisely a given point where I took the cover off uh, the pot, the walk, Roddy took the picture. And this is the picture that's in the book. Most beautifully definitive photograph you've ever seen. <laughs> Wouldn't you know that was me? <laughs> huh? Could have been my Aunt Sarah. <laughs> now, Roddy, you've got to do something better than that on your next printing. You've got to get a picture where at least they recognize who it is. Well, as a matter of fact, Danny, one of the reasons I came here tonight is because I want to take another picture of you. Really? Hmm. Right. You can take a picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, hold it there. No, that's no good, Dan. It's no good? No, no, no. How about that? No, no, no. Try another. How can you, how can you take a picture? You sit still and you get... That's terrible. Try another pose. As sitting still with a frozen smile, here we are for a photograph. We're all dressed up in our Sunday suit, trying not to laugh. Since the early man, caveman as fur, took a trip to Gretna Green. There's always been a photographer to record the happy scene. Flash bang, wallop, what a picture, what a picture, what a photograph, poor old bloke, blimey, what a joke, hat blown off in a cloud of smoke, snap hands, stamp your feet, bang it on the big bass drum, what a picture, what a picture, rum to the um, pum, 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 stick it in your family, how about, hold it now, one more picture, right there, right there, there, hold it, hold it, hold it, no, no, no that's no, turn over, the same thing happened long ago when man was in his prime. And what went on, we only know from the snaps he took at the time. When Adam and Eve in their birthday suit decided to get wedged. As Adam was about to taste the fruit, the man with the camera said...
on a television show with Ronald McDowell at my side. We turned around and there was a ball that had fallen on its hide. Well, we looked up and we couldn't see what caused this great event. So I said they'd better put the big black ball in a big brown rolling tent. That's all for episode two of Not Just Yesterday. Thank you for listening, and until next time, dear friends, keep smiling. End credits. Thank you to the following people who helped me in producing this special show. Julie Carricker, for being my very first guest and helping me with various bits of producing the show. Albie Burge, for bringing me into the barren space fold and giving me the confidence to branch out. Juan Miro, for emailing celebrities requesting interviews at my every random whim. Thank you for being so patient with me. We'll get a celebrity guest for the next one. Skipper Martin, for providing tips and equipment to make my podcast awesome. You seem to bring faraway spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love. But only with you Every night about seven This has been a Barren Space production.